Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. One of the biggest developments in the last few years in the basic income space was the announcement by Y Combinator Research that they were going to run a pilot on the topic of basic income to actually better understand what it looks like for people to receive unconditional cash. This happened just about two years ago now, and it really helped to kick off the conversation around basic income in the United States. So today we're very fortunate to have the person leading that effort at Y Combinator Research. So welcome to the podcast, Elizabeth Rhodes. Thanks. It's great to be here. So why don't you start off by just telling us a little bit about your background as a researcher and how you came to Y Combinator Research. When I first heard about the job posting, I was finishing up my dissertation at the University of Michigan. My background is in um, social work and political science. And I have been involved in poverty research, um, both as a social worker and in terms of policy on the political science side. I've worked a lot with the existing social safety net, both domestically and abroad. And pretty early in my graduate school time, I did an independent study with a professor and a colleague. And we were sort of thinking outside the box on poverty, anti-poverty strategies. And reread even it was actually Milton Friedman's first discussion of the negative income tax. And we sort of reconsidered what that might look like now. And that was my sort of introduction to the topic. I had definitely not heard of sort of the movement for universal basic income. Uh, it was more sort of just the guaranteed minimum income um, in the more of a negative income tax model. So we had done, we had written a paper on that and calculated what it would cost to implement a negative income tax now at different levels and different marginal tax rates. So I was really interested in the topic. And then when I heard Someone forwarded around the political science department at Michigan, actually, Sam's announcement that he, Sam Altman's announcement that YC Research was looking to do a study. And I jumped at the chance. It was no one else, and people would talk about the idea, but no one else was willing to take a risk and invest in this idea that is sort of pushing the envelope, I guess, in a lot of ways. Now, Y Combinator Research and the Basic Income Project in particular is a pretty new thing for Y Combinator, which is a startup accelerator. So can you tell us a bit more, what, what was the motivation here? What, what were the intended outcomes? What were the goals of this effort? So Sam Altman, who was the a president of Y Combinator, had, you know, YC is, was established to promote innovation. And there a lot of that can happen in for-profit through startups. But there's a lot of questions and sort of societal level problems that shouldn't be addressed. Either they shouldn't because no one company should develop this particular idea or have control of it, or, you know, they're too long, they're not suited for a profit. And so that's what gave him the original idea for YC Research. And the first group within that was OpenAI, which is seeking to develop generalized artificial intelligence in an open source, not-for-profit environment. And I think he began to then think about what, what other types of questions like that do, you know, we want to tackle. And with OpenAI and, and what automation might lead to was sort of got him thinking about basic income. He also sort of talked about the, the YC model in some ways as a basic income for, for founders at the beginning of their launching their startup. So that's where this particular idea came up. Right now, there's sort of in, just a group of independent projects working um, within sort of under the, the banner of YC Research. So given this general interest in basic income, how did you go about designing the project that you're now working on to achieve those goals? So it's been a difficult and a long journey in a lot of ways because there's so many questions that we have and there is so much interest in basic income. And so I think we started at the most general 
questions, these really broad, like what is what would universal basic income look like? How did it affect people? And then through working with, like, we pulled together you know, large groups of like academics and policymakers and had these sort of day-long workshops and conferences talking about, well, if we're going to sort of operationalize this into a, a study, like a very concrete study where we can ask very specific questions, you know, there were a lot of decisions that had to be made at the outset, things like, do we saturate an entire community? Do a more geographically dispersed, randomized controlled trial? And we, we just met with a lot of different people and talked about, you know, there's not only the financial concerns with the cost of such a project, there is the ethical concerns about, you know, you're giving people a lot of money and you're potentially changing not only individuals' lives, but like the social context within communities. And there were just a lot of things, you know, how does it work with the existing safety net and the existing policy, you know, there's been so much to think about. And so I think it was really kind of a, I think people expected us to launch like really fast, but there's just been this process of figuring out, well, what, what can we do? What are the questions we can answer? And sort of refining slowly into the, coming up with a study design that we feel like we've landed on that for this, you know, we believe that it's definitely a foundational study. It's not going to answer all the questions we have about basic income, but it is going to sort of provide a foundation about how this affects individuals moving forward. And we hope there'll be a lot of exploratory outcomes, thinking about you know, helping identify areas for future research and um, you know, sort of hope to continue pushing um, the research agenda forward. So speaking of doing upfront legwork to make sure you're properly prepared, you've actually approached this in multiple phases and you've already been running a pilot program in Oakland where you are giving people cash in advance of, of a larger experiment. So can you tell us a bit more what that pilot program was, how, how who was involved, what was happening with them, and what that experience was like? Sure. So before we even started anything, we actually talked with some of the people that ran the negative income tax experiments, which is sort of the most recent version of something similar to this. This was back in the 60s and 70s, and they were really criticized for a lot of reasons. So we actually talked with them and said, okay, how do we not repeat the mistakes of the past? And one of them was to make sure to, to run pilots, to test these things out. You know, there was a big push then to just get started. And you're not able to think through all of the unintended consequences. Everybody makes mistakes. So we decided to do several phases of a pilot, actually, because we realized we could sort of iterate and learn as we go. So I guess it was a year ago in August, we launched a small feasibility study. It ran for one year. It had only six people, um, which gave us a chance to, you know, work very closely. And it was just at this point, like when I started, it was just me and, and one colleague. So it was we were kind of working on everything ourselves. And half of them received $1,500 a month for the for the full year. And the other half received a smaller sum, a nominal amount of $50 to thank them for participating. And it was really interesting to watch. Obviously it's, you know, we randomly selected these people from Oakland. They were all lower income residents and spent a lot of time with them. They were really, you know, we didn't know in a lot of ways what all the potential pitfalls were. And so we were able to learn. I mean, they were really great and willing to share their data. So I think we learned a couple things from that. I'll talk a little bit, a little bit more about some of their experiences, but I think we learned a couple things. Like we learned that it's possible to do this, that people were willing to 
provide their data and share their stories because we can only learn if people are willing to share that information. And they were, you know, eager and willing. They actually, if we didn't send out a survey, they would contact us and be like, hey, can you know, we do this. So they were willing to share a lot about their lives. And we also learned that even with a really small number of people, it was interesting to see sort of what transpired over the course of a year. It's certainly not a basic income. It's a very short term, you know, defined cash, but just that that security that it provided did. I mean, it, it allowed someone who was kind of couch surfing between friends and family, um, working a part-time seasonal job to actually move out to Antioch, where she was able to get an apartment with a group of people and work, started working a full-time, like much more steady job. Um, other people were able to, like, there was a student who was able to work fewer hours, like fewer part-time jobs and focus more on school and sort of getting balance in their life and figuring out what they wanted to do next. And so it, there's just so many different ways that it can influence people, but I think we'll, we will, just in those six, we learned so much and I'm really excited to see what happens with, you know, 3000 people. So those, those individuals are actually still participating in receiving smaller amounts of money. So we're launching now the second phase of the pilot where we're going up, up to hundred people still in the, the Oakland area. They'll be receiving smaller amounts of money. It's less about what does the basic income do, but more about operationally, you know, the process of distributing payments, of collecting data, of recruiting and enrolling people. So we're sort of refining those. We learned a lot with six and now we're learning more. We're working with a national survey research firm that's helping us carry out, like implement the entire study. And so they're getting involved now too. And so that's sort of our last pilot phase that'll probably run for another six months to a year but hopefully we're planning on later this year launching um, a larger 3,000 person randomized controlled trial um, across two states so we want to get into that in a moment i'm curious if there's any pitfalls or things you learn not to do either from talking to the people who were studying this in the 60s and 70s or from your pilot studies in oakland from the 60s i think one of the things that came up there was they were really looking at a macro level they wanted to see if you give people money, do they work less? That was the real concern, was the labor market response at that time. And But what the study that they designed wasn't really actually able to measure that because it could only look at a sort of a demand side response. Do these people work less? But it's not if everyone gets this and everyone has a floor, you know, is there, you know, this injects money into the economy of people who are likely to spend it. Does it create more demand for jobs? Do people, are they able to say, well, I don't want to take that job because I have this floor and wait till find a different job and what does that do to wages? Also, you know, it was a very short-term study and in some ways it was sort of like a an opportunity for leisure as some have, have talked about. So one thing that we wanted to do first is say, okay, we want to make sure that the questions we're asking we can actually answer with our study. And that's why we really are focusing on what are the effects of this unconditional cash monthly over like a three or five year period on individuals and their families and those in their network. You know, we're not gonna be able to identify, you know, what happens to the entire community or what happens to prices or what happens to rent levels and things like that. But we are able to say, okay, how does this affect individuals? What, how does it affect the decisions they make, the opportunities they have, their spending patterns, their well-being, you know, all kinds of um, different things like that. So you mentioned that Hopefully this year you'll be launching this much larger experiment. Can you tell us more about that? Who is involved? What is the process going to look like? How, how will you actually run this? So we have developed a 
a proposed design that's actually available on the website. We've shared it with, we've gotten feedback from probably hundreds of academics and policymakers. It's still, I mean, we're still modifying as we continue to learn from the pilot, but we've partnered with universities. Um, we have another group of academics, David Brockman from Stanford, Sarah Miller from the University of Michigan, and Eva Vavalt from Australian National University are working very closely with me. We're sort of the four PIs and we have a group of, a growing group of eight or nine senior academics who are advising and sort of overseeing the project. As I said, we have partnered with the Center on Poverty and Inequality at Stanford. We're partnering with Poverty Solutions at the University of Michigan. It's not something we're doing in isolation, obviously. And we are working with a large national survey research firm that works on these kinds of experiments. They've done um, moving to opportunity years ago and things like that. So definitely helping with the implementation. So right now we are actively fundraising and applying for grants and things like that and continuing with the pilot in preparation for, you know, as I said, hopefully later this year, and we have a design that includes 3,000 individuals, a thousand of whom will receive a thousand dollars a month, most of them for three years and a smaller group for five years. And can you speak to the specific data that you'll collect? We are collecting a fairly wide range of, of data, and there's a couple different sources. One is administrative data, which is data that like the government collects, um, you know, things like the IRS earnings and that kind of reports. There's some health data, there's some use of existing benefits, you know, for kids, there's school attendance and all that kind of thing. So with permission, we're actually, the project is overseen by the Institutional Review Board at Stanford. But with, with individuals' consent, we're able to collect that data. So that is sort of passively you know, they don't have to stay in touch with us. We'll be able to collect outcome long-term on some of these measures. We also, we're doing in-person sort of surveys at enrollment and then midline and then endline. We're also doing shorter um, web-based like mobile surveys, maybe monthly to collect data on some things that we need repeated measures or there's a lot of problems with recall. And then a large group of people, probably about 200 of the recipients will be followed much more closely for qualitative interviews. So we'll sit down with them open-ended, really trying to understand their experiences. Trying to understand not only like what are the effects of the cash, but then why, like what are the pathways and what are the constraints people still face or you know what, how could the design be, be better or be more helpful. And the outcomes themselves range you know, across, it's a fairly holistic study. I think a lot of people, as I said in the, in the past, it's been the very much focus on like, do people work or not work? And that's something we're collecting data on, but it's much more broad. I think, how do people spend their time in general? There are so many other productive uses of time just besides sort of like the paid labor that we, you know, whether they're caring for a child or elderly relative or, you know, they starting other businesses or, you know, how do people spend their time? We're looking at financial health so and measures of resilience. So not only, yes, they have sort of a steady stream of income, but then if they faced an unexpected expense, would they be able to cope without filing for bankruptcy and things like that? We're looking at lots of measures, health-related measures, not only outcomes, but also like service utilization and um, mental health outcomes, which a lot of other studies of things like lottery studies and the earned income tax credit have all had very positive effects. We're looking at subjective well-being and measures of self-efficacy and locus of control and, and how does this affect well-being more broadly? Um, because I think those types of outcomes really have a long-term effect on all these other outcomes we're looking at and, and how does this, this sort of minimum level of security in what ways does this affect well-being and outlook? I know that in some of the studies that have been done in developing nations around cash transfers, one of the aspects that's been explored is context setting 
around giving people cash. And if it's presented, it could be the same money and there could literally be no conditions, but it's described in a different way to people. And there's been exploration as to how that description actually then has an impact and what ultimately happens to people. Is that something that will be either actively included in the experiment or will there be some way to do analysis around that? There will. So in order to have, it's a, don't want to go down the rabbit hole of statistical power, <laughs> but in order to be able to really detect effects, we can't have too many different treatment arms. So if we give people lots of different amounts of money or you know, change the way it's framed a lot of different ways, it's a lot harder. We want to focus on really more what we call heterogeneous effects. So looking at how it affects people across different income levels and gender and things like that. And so we're having sort of a uniform across everyone framing. But having said that, and partly because we aren't the government, we can't, you know, we're a nonprofit organization and researchers, and there's only so much that we can do. I mean, we, we don't want to deceive anyone in that way, but we want to understand how people view the money. And so it, certainly part of the analysis is figuring out, and there's a lot of questions related to if government, might, like really trying to dive into that, because I think it does make a huge difference, even in, I mean, as we talk about, if this is viewed as like a stigma, like a, just sort of a welfare program versus this universal human right, it could have very different effects. And so that's something we want to explore through the analysis. What are you personally curious about in terms of how this plays out? Wow. A lot of, I think a lot of things. I, I think for me, that level of security, having worked a lot in the existing system and knowing like people just week to week, you know, even, you know, month to month, it's a constant struggle and it's inability to plan for the future or think about the future because it's just constantly, you know, how am I going to pay my bills this week or this month? And that stress just completely wears people down. And so I am really, you know, and this I think would apply a lot across the income level, but I think specifically I'm really interested in seeing how that $1,000 a month is not, you know, a ton of money, but it does provide this level of security. And how does that change people's lives and their relationships? And I'm just um, very eager to learn just to hear their stories and to not, you know, not just the data, but just really on a very basic level, how does this, this affect so many different aspects of their lives? So you mentioned that the plan is to launch this experiment this year. I know at Universal Income Project, we often have people curious, first curious what's going on, but also curious about being involved in some way. Is there a way for members of the public to somehow be involved in this effort? Yes. So, I mean, one of the things, and it's taken us a while, I think, you know, the study was announced and then we kind of went underground and it, it's been a sort of a, you know, people are like, oh, it's being secret. And I think that was never the goal. I think we just wanted to figure out what we were doing before we start talking about it. There are certain aspects of this. We're going to be extremely transparent with exactly what we're measuring, how we're measuring it. Every detail of the plan, you know, how we're going to do the analysis is all going to be available except things like locations and protecting the privacy of participants is like our absolute first priority. And so people cannot say, well, you know, can I interview someone or, you know, protecting that privacy. But beyond that, you know, we're going to be very transparent. So in terms of following, I mean, we're going to, we're still trying to figure out a framework. We have a website, but we're, you know, whether it's blogging and how we're going to be sharing that and sharing updates on the research, certainly we are actively fundraising. And so anyone who, you know, wants to contribute to the effort can do so, you know, through our website. This money is going one-to-one, you know, -one, like 100% directly to individuals. Um, it is a very, you know, giving people $1,000 a month for three and five years is, is pretty expensive. So it's, you know, something that we are um, 
continuing to raise money for. But we do, I mean, we want a lot of people, you know, we want people to be involved and to share the, the information as much as we can. And is there a website URL you can share for folks? Sure. It's ycr.org slash basic income, one word. Thank you, Elizabeth Rhodes, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. That was Elizabeth Rhodes on the Basic Income Podcast. I'm very excited to see where this data goes. I think it becomes a lot more tangible to people what cash transfers can do when you see things like kids stay in school longer, there's some positive outcomes with health, and that's a lot easier for people to grasp than they had more money and it made their lives better. Definitely. And I find it really encouraging to see them taking time to develop such a thoughtful approach to the experiment. They're really thinking about what is the right way to execute this, taking the time to do that, the pilot in advance in order to assess logistics, and really thinking through what it is they're actually measuring here, what are the outcomes they're going to be looking at. That's in pretty sharp contrast to the negative income tax experiments that were run in the 60s and 70s. Granted, these were amongst the first controlled experiments around policy that were done, but it was pretty muddled as far as what they actually were were looking to assess through those. And I think as a result, you saw people didn't have clear takeaways. And we we have interpretations now, but it it really wasn't a clear, clear conclusions that could come out of that in a way that, to your point, I, I think could be really valuable to understanding how and if we move forward with the policy. Yeah, and with the 60s and 70s ones, there were at least some, it seems like some people had an agenda and how they wanted to interpret the findings, and it was easy enough to project an agenda. Well, I'm sure we'll still have people with agendas sure. now, yeah. but yes, hopefully if it's, if it's more clear from the start, it'll right. be more difficult to derail that. Right, and there's a lot of quantitative data that they're going to collect, which I'm excited to see, and I'm excited to see the qualitative data. I lean toward the quantitative because it's immutable in some ways, but um, a lot of the the real benefits come from reduced stress and just people knowing a little bit more about their future financially. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davison. And if you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice and let your friends know about this. We're always looking for new listeners. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you.